Amen. All right, so last week we finished off chapter 8, section 6, and uh, I guess open it up if there's any loose ends from that discussion before we move into section 7. Any loose ends from last week's discussion? And we, Most of the discussion had to do with the very last section there about that uh, Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So... There can be a change in his operations in the world without there being a change in who God is or his basic nature. But clearly, through history, the way he does things keeps moving ahead. But that's not a change in God. All right, then let's go to, chapter, to section 7. So in your booklets, page 25. And it says, In his work of mediation, Christ acts according to both natures, by each nature doing what is appropriate to itself. Even so, because of the unity of the person, that which is appropriate to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person under the designation of the other nature. That sounds like a tongue twister or a brain twister, doesn't it? But we'll work through it slowly. This is one of those places where we get to and you can actually see the logic of the way these confessions are laid out. How you start at the the biggest end and then you kind of refine it as you move further. Uh, And here, when we talk about the natures of Christ and that kind of stuff, isn't it good that we've already covered that a few chapters back? Right? So that we've, we've covered this stuff. Maybe it's worth thinking about it again. But this isn't brand new material. This is stuff that we have already looked at uh, previously. So, let's start there. How many natures does Jesus Christ have? Lydia, you were quite brave. Two. Lydia is correct. Christ has two natures. Do you know what they are? His human nature and his divine nature. Very good. How old are you, Lydia? Fourteen. Wonderful. Isn't that great? I'm not sure I would have known that Christ had two natures when I was fourteen. Okay, so yes, Christ has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. Can I ask you one more question, Lydia? Which of those natures was involved in saving Lydia Hamstra? Both of them, that's right. Yeah, very good. Both natures are involved in, uh, in the work of mediation here. So it says, and let's break this down, in his work of mediation... Christ acts according to both natures, by each nature doing what is appropriate to itself. And so let's just stop right there. So we have talked about this, so some of this will be review, but it's good review, because these are big topics and we are forgetful people. Let's start with Christ's human nature. What role does Christ's human nature play in our salvation? Why is it necessary that Jesus Christ was a living, breathing man with a mind and memories and skin and bone and organs? Why is that necessary? Lisa? To take the full wrath? Yeah, because who's he representing? Man. Yeah, he's representing mankind, right? So who can represent us other than one of us, right? If we're going to be represented, 
our representative has to actually represent us. So it is critical that Jesus Christ is an actual man. Okay? Um, now I'll ask another question. Either names or ideas, it doesn't matter to me. Who has denied the humanity of Jesus in the past or today? Uh, well, the Jews would grant that Jesus is a human. They get the other part wrong. <laughs> but they would say he is a human. Jesus was a historical person. They would disagree in our understanding of the Trinity. The, who, who in church history or what ideas in church history would deny that Jesus was an actual man? Gnosticism. Who said that? Katie, yes. Gnosticism. Do I dare ask you what Gnosticism is? Yes, correct. A Greek philosophy that says anything material is bad and anything that's spiritual is good. Right? And so in that conception, and this is a conception I grew up strongly with, I've shared that before. In my conception, and I'm not going to say anyone taught this to me, I think I just picked it up. But in my conception as a kid, salvation was being released from your body. Right? And, and I do think we talk that way far too much at funerals that we're released from our body. Now we're this free-floating spirit. That's ultimate salvation. That's temporary salvation. Final salvation is the resurrection, being reunited with that body. So that's Gnosticism. Anything else? Any group or ideas? The early Mennonites, yep. Yeah, Menno Simons denied the humanity of Jesus. Yep. So thankfully no one after him followed that idea. Um, but again, and I've mentioned this before, and I'll say it again, because that one hits pretty close to home. This is why looking at confessional Christianity, historic Christianity, uh, and ultimately we would say biblical Christianity is so important so we don't make those kind of mistakes. Because that controversy was hammered out hundreds of years before Menno Simons showed up. <laughs> he could have known better. Right? We, we could say a very early Christian in the first century, this hasn't been hammered out yet, is there a level of... A past that you allow? Well, sure. If, it hasn't, if the church has never dealt with something, it's different than if this has been settled for 1,100 years and then to get it wrong is a little, a little different. Yep. Okay, and so then Lydia also pointed to Christ's other nature, which is his divine nature. And what do we mean when we say Christ has a divine nature? He's the second person of the Trinity. Yep. So, is Jesus of Nazareth God? Yeah, Caitlin and Kevin are nodding yes, and they are correct. Jesus of Nazareth is God. Was Jesus of Nazareth a human? Yeah. Yeah, he was. Can you kill Jesus of Nazareth? Can you kill the second person of the Trinity? No. Okay. Who denies today, through history, ideas, people, names, whatever, you mention it, who denies the divinity of Jesus? Islam denies the divinity of Jesus, right? He's a human prophet. Yep. JWs deny, deny the divinity of Jesus. Yep. Anyone else? Any other ideas or groups or names? Well, traditionally, all of society now, besides, a lot of society, traditionally refers 
Right, and you're just a, a teacher, yeah, a nice guy, yeah. Yeah, for sure, Jolin's right, yep. Jews, yep, Jews would have... <laughs> well, and, and that's a fair point, because if you're going to grant the divinity of Jesus, at what point are you still not a Christian? <laughs> at that point, you should just get on board. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, well, I would imagine they're angry. There's a fight going on in their head then. Yeah, well, they would grant, yeah, they would grant that Christian God can be true, um, but he's one in this kind of pantheon of gods, right? They've got, they'll grant divinity to anyone who's asking. I probably could get granted divine status by a Hindu. Um, and that's, that is, I would say actually, and I don't think this is overstating it, to give up on the laws of logic, I would actually say is sinful. Jesus is the divine logos. Jesus is the divine logic. So to break the laws of logic, I would say is a sin. It's an intellectual sin. You're sinning with your mind. I would say arbitrariness is a sin. Uh, and, and logical fallacies are sinful because we're supposed to love Jesus with all our mind. What's very difficult for those of us committed to things like logic is to understand that Eastern mystical mindset. Where, okay, so you're talking with your Hindu friend and he'll grant you Jesus is God. Sure, he's got no problem with that. He's right along the shelf there with a hundred other ones. Um... But how do you then resolve that? Okay, but Jesus says he's the only God. Right? And, and C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he lays this out. If you grant any divine status to Jesus Christ, we immediately have a logical problem. Right? This is his liar, lunatic, or Lord dilemma. Who is this guy? Okay? If he says he's God and he's not, he's a liar, and he's not morally trustworthy at all. Okay? He could be mistaken. If I told you guys that I am God incarnate, I hope you would all walk out of the room. Okay? Because I'm not someone who can be trusted. Either I'm knowingly lying to you and I'm morally not credible, or I'm so out in la-la land that you shouldn't be listening to me anyway. Okay? So Jesus could be a liar. He could be a lunatic. Or he's right. And he's Lord. But there can only be one Lord. I was visiting with a a young Christian lady not that long ago, and she was talking about evangelizing one of her Eastern friends. And uh, this friend friend had told her, and it's so frustrating, yes, I, I think all the monotheistic religions are valid. It's like, come on! Come on! All the, all the religions that claim to be the only one are all valid. Like, just logically, that doesn't work. If Islam is true, Christianity is false. If modern Judaism is true, Christianity is false. Works the other way, too. If Christianity is true, Judaism is a false religion. Islam is a false religion. Hinduism is a false religion. Secularism is a false religion. Right? So, 
it, it's very difficult, and I think in the West, well, I'll throw this out for a question. Are we becoming Easterners in our thinking here in the West? Have we abandoned the laws of logic? Or are we abandoning the laws of logic and just going into this mystic soup where there's just a bunch of gases floating around and everything's ill-defined? Yeah, you got to speak your truth, Howard. Hugh is nodding his head quite, quite adamantly, and Hugh comes from South Korea. So Hugh might be able to tell us something here that would be useful. Yeah, and it, it's really tough as, as we do get Easternized here in the West. It's it really tough, and I agree with you. I think to a large degree that's what the same-sex marriage and transgenderism is about, is refusing to accept stable definitions of things, right? Anything can become anything else. It's all in a state of flux, right? So two women can say they're married, or I can be what I, you know, what I want to be. I, I think that's correct. Um, there's a story. Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Okay, did everyone hear Keith's point? So sometimes they'll move it a little further down the road and they'll say, okay, well, Christianity and Islam or whatever, pick your religions, can both be true in the sense that they're both seeing things from a different perspective. Okay? Now, if you're on social media at all, you've seen the two guys standing on opposite sides of a number pointing at it, and one guy says six and one guy says nine. Has anyone seen that meme? Okay. Or maybe you've heard of the analogy of this elephant in a dark room and everyone's grabbing the elephant and one guy grabs the leg and he describes what it feels like and one guy grabs the trunk or the tusk and, and the tail and, they, and they're all describing what the elephant feels like to them. Moral of the story, they're all right. Because the, the reason they're all correct is because they're all just describing their little slice of reality. <laughs> right? The guy who, who describes the elephant's tusk in a certain way is right. And it's not contradictory with the guy who grabbed the tail and described what the elephant was like to him. Okay? And that is often used to, to encourage religious pluralism. See, these people were all correct. They're just looking at a different slice. Okay? And so Christians are looking at one slice of God, but we have so much to learn from our Eastern neighbors who are maybe seeing a different perspective on God. Now what? (laughs) 
So there's, okay, so there's a contradiction built in there. Uh, Tina's explanation is remarkably simple, and it's correct. To say everyone is seeing a different perspective means there is an actual <laughs> overarching perspective which is true, or it is false. Okay, what about the six and the nine on the floor? I'm looking at it, and it looks like a six, and Don's looking at it from the other side, and he says, no, it's a nine. Oh, okay. Tina is logic on fire here. Howard, Howard's so proud of his wife right now. Yeah? Okay. What's, so what? Someone put it there. So what? I see a six, Don sees a nine. Whoa, so you're telling me an author has the authority over his text? <laughs> well, and, and it goes bigger than that, yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, these, these are all true. Authors have authority over their work. Painters have authority over their paintings. God has authority over reality. So whoever painted the six or the nine, whichever side we're looking at it, if he intended it to be a six and I'm looking at it upside down, I'm wrong. It is what the author intended it to be. And to push it back further, Alfred is correct. God is the author of all reality. All reality. That means reality is what God says it is. And so when you see certain commonalities with other religions that all of a sudden looks like it's approaching Christianity-ish, there's two ways to understand that. The contemporary, common, popular way is to say, see, at the top, all religions do kind of agree, and they've just kind of taken on different cultural expressions. Or you can say, God is the author of all reality, and all people are made in the image of God. So it's not surprising that some tribal people have a creation account that isn't all that different from ours. Okay? Don't be shocked and dismayed at the lack of the authority in the Bible when other ancient peoples have a flood account. Could it be that there's multiple flood accounts because it happened? I'm just throwing it out there. I know that's really swinging for the fence. Is it possible that some of these things have made its way into pagan cultures because they're real. There's actually, I might send it out in the church chat later, uh, an extremely, I enjoyed, uh, podcast. Who's ever heard of the Theology Podcast? Mike, okay. There was one this week about evangelizing the Vikings, the most unlikely group of people to get evangelized. These guys loved war, they loved pillage, they loved rape, they loved all things that Christians don't love. Um, and remarkably, it took some missionaries with a backbone. And once the Christians started acting like they had a backbone, the Vikings started to respect them. And the Vikings were evangelized. Okay? Uh, I might send it out. It's worth a listen. It's extremely interesting um, going through this, this extremely unlikely account um, of uncompromising Christianity. Lisa. Yeah. Okay. Now we're now we're inside the household of faith. Okay. Um, so, 
Did we get the big E on the eye chart correct? Are we Trinitarian gospel-believing Christians? Yes. Are there differences through history among legitimate Christians on baptism or church governance and that kind of thing? Yes. Yes. Okay. If I'm going to say a view on baptism makes someone not a Christian, I have to get rid of my Matthew Henry commentary. I have to get rid of Valley of Division prayer book. I have to get rid of everything by the Puritans, actually, at least for the first hundred years. Um, I have to get rid of Martin Lloyd-Jones and Francis Schaeffer. I'm, I'm not happy to do that. It's a difference, but it's not an in or the out of the kingdom difference. It's a how do we... How do we understand the progression of covenants and that kind of thing? It's a different kind of debate than ultimate reality, which is some of these other discussions is about ultimate reality. No, and I agree. Jesus Christ is the dividing line. In Christianity, there, there are differences. There's denominations, there's historical differences, to be sure. But I think we look at that as differences inside of a family, among genuine Orthodox Christians. Um, Anglicans do church governance in a way that I think has caused them unnecessary problems. They're Christians. And I have a different view of church governance than them, right? Presbyterians have a different view of baptism. They're Christian people. We're going to enjoy heaven with them, right? The the differences I'm talking about here is is more to the point of what Alfred's saying. Who defines reality? How are your sins forgiven? What are you going to do with the guilt in your life? And maybe that's, that's almost the ultimate question about who Christ is. What are you going to do with your guilt? What are you going to do with it? Where are you going to go? Um, and then who Jesus is becomes, becomes the big E on the eye chart. But I think we have to be okay with differences among Christians. Um, that di- so let's say on, on church governance, can one church practice all the different governance styles? No, they can't. Okay? And if the Bible describes how church governance ought to work, someone's right and someone's wrong. Or I suppose we could say everyone's been wrong so far, and we'll figure it out down the road. That's possible. But what we can say is we can't all be right. Anglicans, Baptists, and Presbyterians can't all be right on church governance because they all disagree with each other. So at least two of the three are wrong, and possibly all three are wrong, and we're going to get it figured out yet. Baptism differences, eschatology differences, there's been uh, how to do covenant theology. There's been differences, and and. We need to be gracious and okay with that. It doesn't mean we can all be right. It doesn't mean we kick it into relativism. It just means be generous. But what, what I think we're focusing here to bring it back to the, to the section is who is Jesus Christ? That's, that's the dividing line between 
false religions and the true Christian faith. More on this. Let's go back to Lydia describing the two, the two natures. What is the divine nature doing in your redemption? So Christ mediates. He represents you as a person, so he has to be a real person. How is the divine nature involved in mediation for your sins? He's a go-between, yep. And who needs to forgive Evangeline Keeley's sins? God does, yep. And who's the only one who can satisfy God's righteous demands? God, yeah. Okay, so God is demanding certain things that only he can fulfill. The genius of the God-man is truly genius that no one in this room could have cooked up. In Romans 3.25 or 26, talks about Jesus and says, he is the just and the justifier. Incredible genius there. He's the just, he's the righteous one who demands perfection. And he's the one who meets that condition. He demands perfection and then he pulls that perfection off for you. That's what it means that Jesus is the just and the justifier. He's making the demands and then he's fulfilling them on your behalf. Okay, both natures are involved. Jesus has to be like you in every way so that he can represent you. And he has to be God so he actually has the power of absolute righteousness and absolute forgiveness to, to truly do this. Uh, and this is why talking about the natures of Christ and some of these heresies about the Trinity and Christology, it might sound like it's just kind of hair-splitting. But if you do any damage, either to the humanity or to the divinity of Christ, the gospel is gone. It's gone. You tinker with the Trinity, there is no way of salvation. None. You take any one of the persons out or damage their natures, there is no salvation. There can't be. Salvation is Trinitarian. And the nature of Jesus must be both man and God. It must be. Okay? If Jesus is an ethical teacher, he cannot save you any more than any other New Age teacher. Okay? And if he's not really a man, no one has represented you, and you are still dead in your sins. I'll stop there. Discussion on that? Does that make sense? This isn't just hair splitting. This is life and death. This is whether your sins can be forgiven or not. Okay, this is important stuff. And then it says, and this is where it starts to get into a brain twister. Even so, because of the unity of the person, that which is appropriate to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person under the designation of the other nature. I'll try to define that first and then we'll look at the texts. So, do we all agree Jesus of Nazareth as a man can get killed, right? You can hurt him, he can get hungry, he can get tired, and he can die, right? Raise your hand if you agree with that, okay? 
The second person of the Trinity is absolutely not subject to change, cannot be altered in any way, shape, or form, and can never be damaged. Raise your hand if you agree with that. Okay. Good. So, we're all orthodox so far. (laughs) So, this is good. Now, two natures. How many persons is Jesus Christ? Olivia's crushing it today, man. Just throwing them low and outside at 40 miles an hour, and she's knocking them out of the park. That's good. Yeah. There's one person with two natures, and that's what makes this so hard to understand, is how all these attributes from two natures can apply to one person. And again, that's because in our experience, there's only one person inside of each of us. Right? There's one person with one nature for everyone in this room. How Christ can have two natures is what makes this difficult to comprehend. But because they are united in one person, if we're going to speak very, very strictly, too strictly, cutting it too fine, who would we say, um, who would we say died on the cross? Would we say Christ died on the cross or would we say Jesus died on the cross? If we're going to be overly fussy. Very strictly speaking, who died? Jesus. Okay. Is it wrong to say that Christ died on the cross? It's not. And that's what this is saying. Because the two natures are together in one person, sometimes it will talk about Jesus touching on his divine attributes, and sometimes it'll talk about Christ in his human attributes, because it is one person, right? So we could say Jesus did a miracle. Well, okay, he did that miracle according to his divine nature, but it says Jesus did it. Correct. And that you know, Christ, um, Christ got tired. Okay, well, the second person of the Trinity can't get tired, but because this is united in one person, the Bible uses the natures interchangeably to talk about things that maybe strictly apply to the other person. I'm not sure if I'm explaining that well. But because there's two natures in one person, we can just use the person's name interchangeably whether we're talking about the divine or the human attributes. Okay? Uh, And sometimes people trip up over that, uh, and this is saying you don't need to. What's true of one, in a sense, is true of the other because they're combined, they're, they're united in one person, Jesus Christ. I'm not sure if I'm explaining that well. It, it just is explaining for why the Bible would use God, Jesus, Christ interchangeably. Does that make sense? Have I made it more confusing than it was originally? No? Okay. Okay. Then let's look at the text here. Who wants to take John 3.13? And who wants to take Acts 20.28? 20, Who's got John? Evangeline? And who wants to take Acts Jolene. Okay, go ahead with John 3 when you're ready. Yes, okay. Good. So, no one strictly has gone to heaven except Christ who ascended, but he first had to descend, right? Um, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. And again, trick question, how close are we listening? Why does Jesus call himself the Son of Man? 
What's the meaning of that? What's the significance of Jesus being the Son of Man? He's born of a woman. Where does that language come from in the Bible? Daniel? Yep. Yep. Daniel 7. Remember what Daniel sees? He sees one like a son of man going up to the ancient of days. I think he's talking about Christ's ascension. And he says, one like a son of man. So this one who is ascending, John talks about ascending, this one who is going up to the ancient of days is like a son of man. He looks like a human, and yet you read the vision, and he's more than just a human. Ironically, when we see son of man, we tend to think that's a reference to Jesus' humanity, and and it can be. But I actually think that's also a reference to his divinity because he's talking about the Son of Man vision from Daniel 7. One like a Son of Man is ascending to the Ancient of Days. So I I think there's a genius. And does anyone know uh, Jesus' most popular title for himself? Son of Man. Yeah. I think it's, don't quote me on this, I think 86 out of the 91 self-references is Son of Man in Jesus. It's, and I forget the exact numbers, but it's way ahead of whatever his number two designation of himself is. Jesus talks about himself as the son of man, and I think that's a reference. He's like a son of man. He looks like a human, but he's ascending to the ancient of days, so there's also a reference to his divinity. Caleb. What's that? Yes, as did Enoch. Yeah, and I think those are Uh, We've talked about typology. I think those are types of this. They're pointing to the ultimate one to ascend. Um, The difference here, are you you mentioning that in reference to that it says this is exclusive to Christ? Okay. So those men, uh, Elijah and Enoch, were assumed bodily up up into heaven. They're escorted to heaven. Um, I think what's different is well, the Bible doesn't say what happens to them after they're assumed. What's unique is that Christ takes his seat at the right hand of the Father. He is in the holy of holy, so to speak. He's in the third heaven. I'm assuming, and I can't prove this with chapter and verse because it doesn't say, I'm assuming somehow Enoch and Elijah died. They just died in a dramatic fashion by being assumed bodily out of the world. The Bible doesn't say. But for Christ alone, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is in the heaven of heavens. He's in the third heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father in a way that Elijah or Enoch was not. I'm not sure I can define it better than that. But I don't think, well, and that would lead to a whole another discussion where the departed saints went in the Old Testament. I, I don't, well, we'll leave it there because that'll just go on a whole nother. <laughs> A whole nother trail. Um, but I think they went to, to Abram's bosom. I think they went to a pleasant place. But I don't think they were in the heaven of, of heavens as we conceptualize of it. Marina. Okay, great question. So Marina's asking, what would that have meant to them? And so often, have you, whenever you're reading your Bible... And because you've read it so many times, it just seems normal to you the way Jesus talks. 
and yet a mob gets riled up because of something that seems normal to us, right? Sometimes the way Jesus answers questions, these people were so seeped in their Old Testament. When Jesus says, well, before, Mo- before, Abram- before Moses was, I am, that's an angering statement. That is a claim to divinity. I go emi. I am who I am. That's the language God used uh, with Moses. And, and sometimes that gets lost in translation or with familiarity. When Jesus talks about himself as the son of man, he's making a claim. This is, I'm the guy that Daniel saw. I am ascending to my father. I'm God. Um, and you'll notice in your Bible, when, son, when Jesus talks about himself as the son of man, how does that appear in your English Bible? capitalized. It's a title. It's a title. It's not a description. This is a name. Okay? This is a name. Yes. Someone who has access to the Ancient of Days. Someone who's ascending to the Ancient of Days. That's right. Yeah, it would be such a claim as that. Yeah, it's a claim to divinity. This, I am the one. And, and there's a, Jesus is confrontational even with his names for himself. The way, he, the way he speaks of himself, a decision has to be made. I'm not nothing. I'm not a moral teacher. You have to decide. You have to bend the knee or you're at war with me. But there is no neutrality. You have to decide. And I think son of man language pushes that decision, who he is. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, because we don't live in that language or that culture, and you've learned about Jesus being the Son of Man since you were a little girl, it doesn't do anything unless you stop and intentionally think about it, right? Why is it capitalized? What's going on in Daniel 7, right? Um, even... Uh, when we talk about Psalm 110.1, God's most popular Bible verse, where it says, the Lord says to my Lord, those two Lords look really closely. They're different. One is all capital and one is not. Okay? The uh, Adonai says to Yahweh, right? The Lord says to my Lord, and we just have one word, right? So to us, it just sounds like the same thing. Well, look closely, why is one capitalized and one's not? Because uh, that's the only way we can deal with it. When we're talking about the divine Lord, in your English Bible, it's all capitalized. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Whereas just a title, Lord, you know, royalty or some dignitary, you can call Lord, but it's all lowercase, right? So some of those things, it, it helps to think about it, what, what's happening in our English Bibles. Anything else on this? Okay. Yes. Yep. Yep. Good. Okay. Then whoever had Acts, uh, let's go to Acts twenty twenty eight. 
Okay, so what does that have to do with all this? Let's go back. Can you kill the second person of the Trinity? Can the Trinity bleed? According to Luke, whose blood purchased the church? Well, it says, what does it say here? Yeah. God obtained this church with his blood. Checkmate, Trinitarians. God doesn't bleed. Ha ha. Okay, but this is an example. This is an example of using the language interchangeably. Jesus of Nazareth died, and here it says God bought the church with his blood. Okay, the language is interchangeable because God and man are united in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, and the whole, actually the whole, I'm going to throw this out here. Um, The whole controversy that got the church to hammer out its Christology in the early centuries of the church was a controversy about a prayer in which someone called Mary Theotokos, which means the mother of God. And some people took exception to that. You can't call Mary the mother of God. And other people said, well, who's Jesus? God. So, if you're an Orthodox Christian, on which side of this one are you? Can we say Mary is the mother of God? Yes. And we're not proto-Catholics for saying it. Jesus was given birth to by Mary, and Jesus is God. (laughs) Mary is the mother of God, if you believe in Orthodox Christology. Now, some of us have a real, uh, that's starting to sound Catholic. Well, they can corrupt it however they want. But this, yeah, (laughs) you're getting flashbacks? Like the meme of that dog from Vietnam when he's having all those Vietnam flashbacks? (laughs) Kind of like that? No. Um, We we can say Mary is the mother of God. That's what the council uh, decided. I think that's orthodox, sound, biblical language. If Jesus is God and Mary gave birth to Jesus, QED, Mary is the mother of God. Now we want to maybe be careful what we, how we apply that or what we do and don't mean by it. Um, but that was what instigated this whole controversy that got hammered out in, um, in the definition of Chalcedon was that exact controversy. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They they do too much with that. Yeah. For sure. And and Mary starts to become a mediatrix, and and we have to pray to her because we need a mediator even to get to our mediator. So you got to get through Mary to get to. That's all weird stuff that we don't need to get into. But let's not, out of an allergic reaction to that, either downgrade what God had Mary do. She was the mother of God. So, and according to Luke, we can say God died on the cross. Even though strictly speaking, he did not. But the God-man did. So God, we can say God died on the cross without that being a major theological error. We've thoroughly confused everybody. But does this make sense? <laughs> I maybe shouldn't say it that way. Okay? How many gods are there? One. One. 
And the second person of the Trinity, okay, when he comes as the God-man, has how many natures? Two natures. And they are human and divine. Okay? And they are united in how many persons? One. Okay? And we can use language because of that. We can use language that's somewhat interchangeable as the Bible does. Okay? So have it clear in your head, but we don't need to be fussers if someone uh, talks a certain way as long as we understand what they mean. So we'll leave it there. Let's close in prayer and then we can have some coffee. Father God, thank you for your genius in the gospel, in sending the God-man, in sending the Son of Man to come and to perfectly stand in as the mediator who is able to perfectly represent both you and us in the exchange of salvation. Lord, I want to thank you for the incredible gift that, that we can know that we are saved by the blood of Christ, that he has secured all righteousness for us perfectly, um, and at the same time that, that he is the one who pardons us. You are perfect. And so, Lord, you have, you have even gone so far as to supply the condition that we need to bring to you. And I pray that that would fill our hearts with gratitude. Uh, I pray that when we discussed these big ideas, that it would not lead to uh, a proud or an arrogant uh, attitude, but that it would produce in us a grace and a humility uh, and a generosity uh, to share the good news with others. Lord, and I pray for each one here, I pray that they would have peace with you, that they can know that their sins are forgiven, uh, that the mediator has done his work, and that we can enjoy eternal rest with you. I pray that you'd be with us as we uh, go through the rest of the morning. I pray that you'd prepare our hearts for worship, that you would be honored in our worship, uh, and that you would strengthen us in that time as well. Thank you for your kindness to us. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. <laughs>